Check, check. Okay, good. Um, so, Elise, thank you very much for setting expectations um, for today. Um, I'm shooting for a little bit under two hours, but I'm not quite sure how close that will be. I actually went down before the service today and talked to Lori and said, I might go a little long. Um, so I'm trying my best to keep things in check as I go through here. Um, one of the things, this is really not my typical forum that I like to teach in. I usually am more of a one-on-one, -on -one, small group discussion type of guy. Those that know me know I love rabbit holes, um, and I will chase those incessantly with the conversations. I had a conversation with Lori recently, um, and it was, we were going to meet for like a half an hour, go over some stuff. I'm going to help with the Roots class coming up. Um, we ended up talking for three hours. Um, I was going to, a few months back, I was going to have uh, coffee with Peter Herzog. We went out, you know, well, yeah, we'll get together for an hour. Three hours later, of course, my wife doesn't call to check on me because she knows what's going on. His wife, though, did call to check on him to figure out where he was at um, still. And then she just like, oh, yeah, I'm still with Phil. Um, so, but know that as we're going forward here, you know, as at least mentioned, this is Paul. This was his first week on sabbatical. Um, we have a great lineup of speakers, you know, coming up. We have um, some seminary professors. We have ministry partners. I don't know if you saw before. We have Ross King coming. Um, we also have a multitude of some of our church family here at Chapel Hill. Um, we have Dale will be doing stuff. Peter will be doing stuff. Marty Erickson will be doing stuff. We got Betsy on the schedule. Um, fortunately for you, this is the only one that I'm on the schedule for. Um, we figured we'd start low, work our way up to the end, and have this triumphant reentry when Paul comes back in September. Um, so that's what we're kind of trying to set up for here. So with that, though, like rabbit holes, I found it's the worst, the only thing that's worse is when I'm talking with a group and going on and on, is when I'm by myself and chasing down rabbit holes trying to put together what I'm saying. So I scripted out what I was going to say. Otherwise, I would probably be up here for two hours because I just kind of build on everything else. So forgive me if I'm kind of reading it a little bit. That's in an effort to get you under, out of here in hopefully under an hour. Um, no, it, it shouldn't be that long. It might be 45 minutes, though. Just, just warning you. Um, so this really probably should have been multiple sermons. Um, like the Lord of the Rings, I had to split it in multiple books. Um, this is the only time I got. I'm not really looking to be commercially viable um, here with anything today. So we're just going to go for it. If you get up and walk out because I'm going too long, I fully understand. I will not hold it against you. Feel free to do that. Go get your kids, you know, whatever you need to do. Um, and that's just fine. I take no offense at anything. So um, anyways, okay. So, in addition to rabbit holes, one of the things that I really like to do is to read and study just about any topic you can think of. Um, as I do that reading and studying, I find that there's a lot of connections between these different fields of study, and these connections lead us to better understandings of things overall. I approach my study of theology, which literally means the study of God, in the same kind of way. I find that we can learn more about God and who he is, not just from our more typical sources like the Bible, um, but from a variety of areas of study. And just as those other areas can inform our understanding of God, the Bible, when applied properly, can inform these other areas of study as well. So as part of this, I tend to look more for perspectives in things um, that I can use to inform my thinking versus hardcore facts that I'm, you know, can maybe have more immediate um, application or explicit application. In my teaching, whether it's here, whether it's with the youth or any ve venue, 
I try not to focus so much on right and wrong answers to questions and situations, but more looking at things from a variety of angles and searching for God's leading. For example, one of the things I started with the youth is like, we have conversations like, can there be aliens? What is the Bible? If there were, what would that say about your faith? Does your faith allow for that, your understanding of the Bible? Not saying that there are aliens, not saying that there's not. But again, it's a perspective to take as we think through things, think about God, think about our faith, and drive down into those types of things. So when we talk about a worldview, it is really just a series of these perspectives that we have gathered throughout our lives, either from life experience, our observations, or study of those things that we don't necessarily have direct contact with, but that in the end still impact our view on things. I've, this is why I feel it, this broad study of a variety of topics is needed to have a proper perspective of the world that God has created and has planned for it. And if I start speaking fast here, it's because I think I'm already behind uh, my, my schedule here. So James said last time I did this, I preached really fast and spoke really fast. I might have to do that, but it's all for your benefit, trust me. Okay, if we limit ourselves to perspectives that simply align with our current way of think thinking, we risk missing something that God truly might be telling us or trying to teach us. Not all perspectives are correct, but without truly considering a variety of perspectives and being willing to challenge our own, we will never truly know if the perspectives we hold are valid. John Stuart Mill, um, who was a 19th century English author and wrote On Liberty, among other things, said that one of the greatest dangers in a society is when opinions go unchallenged to the point of becoming accepted as fact. While he was targeting more statements towards, this statement more towards social and political issues, I believe that it is equally valid for the theological. I've heard many times that the world today is just a horrible place, but for a student of history, one realizes that it is not necessarily better or worse, but that we just continue to repeat the same mistakes over and over again in different contexts. Science has given me a perspective of the world and all of God's creation that I wouldn't have if not for making a conscious choice to consider views that differ from what I had been taught in the past. Recently, my son Ethan and I were having a discussion where the direction of the Earth's rotation was mentioned. We do have these discussions, and also what I'm going through today, this is typical dinner conversation in our household, um, so we, we, we're kind of different. Um, and so we were, the question is, does the Earth rotate? He, someplace he had, you know, does the Earth rotate clockwise or counterclockwise? In the end, it comes down to perspective, if one is looking at things from the North Pole or the South Pole. While this is a rather simple example, it gives a solid view into the role that perspective plays in our thinking about things. 500 years ago, Galileo was thrown out of the church and jailed because he dared to promote the idea that the earth was not the center of the universe, since clearly in the book of Joshua it said that God made the sun stand still during one of Israel's battles. Martin Luther was one of these that was extremely critical of Galileo for making the statement. Today, we know that in relation to the sun, it is the earth that is doing the moving. Not saying that Joshua is wrong, just saying we have to take it from a little bit different perspective, maybe based on what we know today. Thus, consider what I present today as me sharing a perspective on things, one which may be right in some ways and flawed in others, but is nonetheless informed by a significant amount of study, meditation, and prayer. So, that was my intro. Now you can see why this might go long. Now we're really getting into it here. Okay. Just as I was saying, I believe that effectively, to effectively understand the world and God's plan for it, it requires us to look not just at the Bible and theology, but science, history, psychology, sociology, philosophy, art, and many other areas. 
In recent years, I've come to have an ever-increasing appreciation of what art can tell us about people, how people have viewed God throughout history, and how ideas about him continue to evolve. evolve. One of the things that's hit me, we recently went to Washington, D.C., went to the National Gallery, and you see a lot of, obviously, religious paintings from the Renaissance, from more the Enlightenment period, all the way back to medieval times. And it's fascinating as you trace that art, those pictures, as you go through history and the different perspectives that are presented throughout history. Today, we have a certain perspective, but it is one that has evolved over time. So when I talk about art, though, I don't mean just these paintings or sculpture, but in broadening everything, including music and literature and media, um, theater, movies, whatever you can think of that might fall in there. I believe that whether a person is a follower of Christ or not, they are still created in his image, and I believe are searching for him to reestablish a relationship with him, even if they don't realize it. I believe that all truth comes from God, but that truth comes regardless of where and how it is communicated to us by him. When an artist creates, at some level, that art will reflect their innermost longings and desires. I have read a number of books, listened to a number of songs, and watched a number of movies and shows that one might consider offensive to, critical of, or derogatory towards Christianity or the church. But when I look deeper, I see a society that is looking for a church to truly live out the mission of Christ and are really speaking out against the many failures of the church and so-called Christians in many cases to do so. And in the process, they are revealing issues within that we need to seriously give continuation, uh, consideration to in a world that is more and more finding the church ineffective, indifferent, uncaring, or hypocritical. We can't reach a world we don't understand. We see in the Bible how the Apostle Paul used his words and illustrations from those cultures around him to help them understand. When I look at movies like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, I see the struggle between light and dark. Um, and how at times we see how much e the struggle between light and dark and God and those forces that oppose him. We can see how it is sometimes easier to give in to the dark than to walk in the path, in the path into the light. In a recent TV series set in the Star Wars universe, The Mandalorian, for those of you that haven't seen it, that my daughter Jillian painted this. So this is the hero. So I'm just going to put this up here so you can kind of remember because this, was, this show was the inspiration for the sermon today. Um, uh, the Mandalorian, one follows a hero struggling with what is the proper path he is called to, following either the strict code established by a remnant of the original inhabitants of his planet that they view as separating them as the true Mandalorians, or whether there is more to right and wrong, more to life than a rigid adherence to a set of rules. The followers of this code refer to it as the way, reaffirming their faith in it by the repetition of the phrase, this is the way. When I first heard that, and maybe others that did that, that conjured into me, and this is where my thinking is always coming back um, to some of these things I thought of the Bible, and where it says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I thought of how in the book of Acts it refers to the church as the way. Um, however, today there are other, and in the Bible we'll see other references to the way, and those are kind of maybe what I'm going to focus on a little bit more today. So, a few verses for you to think about as we dive into this discussion. First is from Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Luke 9, 23 through 25, and he said to all, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Finally, Luke 9, 57 through 62, and there were many other verses I could have chosen. This is just a sampling. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So I'm not diving into each one of those verses. Each of those verses I could probably end up making a multi-part series on, so for the sake of time, I'm not going to do that. But I want you to keep these in mind as we go forward in our discussion today. Because while Jesus is the way, um, capital W there, and the only way to reestablishing our relationship with God, we need to remember that Jesus as the way is not simply a shortcut to heaven and eternal life, that the journey is, or that the journey is complete when someone decides to become a Christian, and it's simply a matter of biding our time here on earth, listening to encouraging music, listening to encouraging speakers, and reading encouraging books to keep our hope alive while making sure we follow a set of rules and behave ourselves until our time on earth is complete. A true Christian is a follower of Christ, and to follow implies that we move together and in line with him, going where he went and acting like he acted. Since Jesus was not and is not static and unmoving, even today, if we are to follow him, we need to move in the path that he laid out for us. Following in the way set for us by Christ is not a part-time job, going through certain motions or even thinking in a certain way. It is an all-encompassing style of living that defines who we are, not how we act. A popular concept today that I'm sure most of you have heard of is work-life balance. The process of making sure that we maintain a proper balance between the role that work plays in our time when compared to basically everything else in our life, like families, hobbies, education, etc., um, that we might encounter. However, there is no work-life balance between our call to follow Christ and the rest of our lives. Every action, every thought, every interaction that we have should be influenced by the fact that we have committed our lives in every way to Christ and his service. How do we do this? Jacques Ellul, he was a French sociologist and theologian. If you haven't read any of his stuff, great stuff, a little heavy, but it's really good. Um, for Christians, what actually matters in practice is to be and not to act. So what does this mean? When the focus is on doing rather than being, we focus on discrete actions, steps that we follow to accomplish some final goal or achieve some desired outcome on the process to achieve some result. When the focus is on doing, it is impossible to always be going, going, going. We need to take time off or we get burned out because we drain ourselves in the attempts to accomplish something ourselves. In the end, however, we need to remember that true change comes only from God and nothing we ourselves, can do, we ourselves can do will come of anything without his direct involvement and influence. When we focus on doing, it often comes with a sense of accomplishment at the end, knowing that we did something to affect some kind of change in the world with tangible or visible results. Thus, it is often easier to do than to be. 
Because being requires us to simply be a tool in the service of God, wielded by him for his purposes, with ourselves not necessarily having the full picture of the plan that we are participating in. But being is what we are called to do, and the doing will follow as we allow God to work through us for his purposes. Another example by Alul that I will paraphrase here, it is not our job to create a just society, but instead to exhibit, in every, exhibit justice in every aspect of our lives. Likewise, it is not up to us to create peace on earth. Instead, we are called to be peaceful, to be peacemakers in every aspect of our lives. Since where there are peacemakers, peace will be found. To make disciples, we first need to be disciples. It is when we adopt a style of life that mirrors the example of Christ that we allow him to really start using us as instruments of his plan. And at that point, when our actions are no longer our own, but God's, we will finally be able to be part of something that will bring about true kingdom change. When we focus on being, God will give us the strength and energy we need to do what he calls us to do. To this end, I believe, we always need to remember that we are sinners. Even after we make the decision to follow Christ, sin is still going to be a part of our lives. And ultimately, what we do, especially of our own accord, will be tainted by our sin. I personally, I like to read Bible verses and books and listen to music and watch shows and movies that are a bit of a shock, that give me kind of what I would call a proverbial kick in the gut to remind me of my insufficiency to ever achieve anything of truly lasting value without God and the grace that he has freely offered to all of us. Martin Luther suggests that we remind ourselves daily that we are all still sinners and that through this then comes a truer and fuller appreciation of God's grace and our role in his plan. Unless we daily remind ourselves of our sinfulness and insufficiency before God without his grace and admit our fallenness, we will struggle with completely surrendering our lives to Christ and allowing him to transform our being from sinner to Christ follower. So what does this surrender look like? To me, it means we abandon our own plans and choose to follow God's. This means we need to surrender our freedom to God. When we become Christians, we are made free in Christ, but we are also freely choosing to serve him and him alone. Our freedom in Christ exists only to serve God, not our own desires. Consider the following from Galatians 5, 13 and 14. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Adam's ultimate dis disobedience at the beginning was to use his freedom to attempt to put himself in God's place, to be self-sufficient. What ultimately we see, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's another theologian, refers to us as the creature trying to become the creator and take that spot. As a follower of Christ, we reestablish God to his proper place in our lives as our Lord, and we accept a life of servitude to him, gladly in thankfulness for the uh, grace that he has given. True surrender requires a constant acknowledgement of our sinfulness and our continued temptation to put ourselves in God's place, to use our freedom for our own purposes. In my mind, sin can best be thought of as any time we put our own desires before those of God's. It is our continued rejection of him as Lord and creator and a failure to recognize him for who he truly is. Ultimately, 
This surrender will mean sacrifice. It will mean that we need to abandon our desires and our ambitions and adopt those of Christ. As Philip Shorey, when he was here a couple months ago, said when he visited us, we need to kill our art. We need to use our gifts, talents, resources, and opportunities for God and his purposes and his purposes alone and not our own. According to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, to sacrifice is to suffer loss of, give up, renounce, injure, or destroy, especially for an ideal, belief, or an end. I once read somewhere that, it, that the Christian isn't necessarily called to actively sacrifice, to look for ways that they need to have, be practicing sacrifice, but instead we just need to be willing to do so, to be prepared and of the mindset to do it when needed. However, how do we really know if we are willing unless we are active in practicing the relinquishing of our own desires for God? It's not enough to just be willing to sacrifice. We must be doing it. We must always be looking at our lives for those things that are blocking us from fully trusting God and his leading and taking steps actively to remove those things from our lives. While it will look different for each person, the call to sacrifice is always there. When he talked about the church, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I mentioned him just previously, was, he was a German theologian who was executed for his role in standing up to Hitler during World War II and bringing the church and keeping the church pure and outside of the Nazi influence. What he says is, the church is the church only when it exists for others, not dominating, but helping and serving. It must tell men of every calling what it means to live for Christ, to exist for others. This sacrifice will ultimately put us in a position to truly live by faith. Whether we want to admit it or not, we like to know what we are supposed to do and when we are supposed to do it. We love lists and we love how-to books. We like to have some kind of plan laid out for us and, more importantly, to know exactly what that plan is. However, I believe these desires lead us to have unrealistic expectations of how God does things and to use the words of the Bible in ways they were never intended. The Bible is not and was never meant to be a how-to manual for life. From my perspective, the sole purpose of the Bible is to point us to God and his plan as realized through the sacrifice of Jesus. When we read the Bible, we should not be asking ourselves, how do I apply this to my life? But instead, what does this teach me about God and how does it draw me into a closer relationship with him? We should focus on asking, on asking why did God include this in the Bible instead of just, what does this say to me? This requires to constantly look to him for guidance in every situation, not depending exclusively on the written word he has graciously provided to us, but to him and him alone. We serve God, not the Bible. The Bible, while absolutely essential for understanding who God is, should never be put in a place in place of him and the guiding of him, his spirit. Soren Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, once said, we become what we understand. To become more like Christ, we must understand who he is, not just follow a kind of code that has been laid out for us. I always think back to the Pharisees. What did they do? What the mistakes they made? That's because they had a rigid adherence to the words that they had been presented and did not trust and follow the guiding of God and Jesus and his spirit. We need to use everything God has provided for us to understand who he is, his creation and his plans. We need to look at all areas of study that I mentioned at the beginning. We need to actively live out a life that matches our understanding of who Jesus is. 
Without that, how can we hope to become more like him? It means we need to be able to step out and force ourselves to look at things in ways that are new to us and uncomfortable for us. It means we need to acknowledge the limits of our own abilities and understanding and rely on God's direction with every step we take, trusting that we, if we have truly surrendered our desires and replaced them with his, that whatever happens is what he intends to happen, even though we might not ever know the reason behind it, at least during our time on earth. The Bible points us to God and informs us of who he is and the relationship he desires to have with us. And when we surrender ourselves to him, we trust God to direct us according to his will. When we instead place our faith, place our faith more in the words that have been recorded for us and our interpretation of them, and there are many interpretations of different passages of the Bible, instead of dependence on God and his leading, we risk missing out on how we are truly called to live and what those words we have been given really mean. So, I'll give you an example. In The Mandalorian, there might be some spoilers in here for people that haven't seen it, so I warn you of that. But we see one of the things that stood out to me is this struggle that he has with his code. In order to save Grogu, a.k.a. Baby Yoda, he removes his helmet at one point, and this is against just about everything that The Mandalorian stand for and their code. And he later, again, spoiler, he gets in trouble for it. Um, but we see him realizing that there are more important things than just the words of a code. We also see this in Jesus. Jesus heals someone on the Sabbath. He talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. He stands up for the adulterous woman when the crowd was about to stone her. And many, many other ways all of which went against the popular understanding of the scripture that God had provided to his people at that point. And we see the example of how we are called to live that goes beyond the limit of the written word that we were left with. And there are, <clears throat> there are so many other examples. It is a picture, if a picture is worth a thousand words, I would say that Christ's life, his example, and the guiding of his spirit is worth about a billion and we will never understand or appreciate the words we do have until we have fully surrendered ourselves, our minds, and our desires to him and his guiding influence. The Bible has words from God, but Jesus is the living word. As sinners, is it is tempting to make the Bible say what we want it to say. It is easier to take the words as is, interpreting based on our current perspective and presuppositions without truly digging in and meditating on them and letting them inform our perspective and possibly even change it. However, we need to surrender these desires to read the Bible the way we might want to and instead be open to God's leading to read it as he would have intended for us 2,000 years removed from the last time something was written down on paper or whatever it was they used back then. Um, the Bible might have been written for all people in all times, but it was not written specifically to us today. It was written to a people living in a very different world than what we do today. And while that does not do anything to diminish its value for us, it does require us to put in just a tad bit more effort to understanding what God's intent was for including what he did based on the cultures and experiences of the original audience. It takes a sacrifice of time and energy to truly learn how to read the Bible to understand what it is saying, and equally important, why it is saying it, along with a good dose of humility to accept that there are things we just might not be able to understand with absolute certainty and to get comfortable living with this uncertainty. At the end, it is necessary to turn over all of that to God, 
letting what I come to understand about him and his desires for a relationship with me and all humanity serve to help me hear better the guiding of his spirit such that my focus remains on following him and not just living according to my vision of what the Christian life should look like. And at the end of the day, I believe we would be well served to spend more time focusing on what is most important in defining what it means to be a follower of Christ since this, more than anything, should be what unites us. One of my favorite quotes is, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, freedom. In everything, love. I'm actually thinking about getting this tattooed on my arm. Um, that's how strongly I feel about it. In our humanness, we will never be able to agree on the interpretations of many of the different biblical passages because, quite frankly, there are a lot of things we just don't know and won't be able to know with absolute certainty until we can sit, in my view of heaven, a coffee shop with Jesus, and have him to explain to us all the things that we messed up and give us, finally, clarity, just like the disciples had a tendency to not get it until they were practically hit in the face with it by Jesus. I would argue that most of the biggest disagreements within Christianity, within the church today, are based on views of non-essential beliefs and traditions. I believe that Satan is often at work here, distracting us from the essentials of God's teaching and his overarching plan for humanity that should be serving to unite us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in another one of his books, or two books, Creation and Fall and Temptation, points out how Satan likes to use religious language to confuse and distract. I think we see this with the serpent in Genesis, with the conversation at the beginning of Job, and I also think we see this with Jesus' temptation in the desert. Um, today, more than ever, we are inundated with information on just about every topic known to humanity, including opinions on what the Bible is saying. While the Bible may be without error, our ability to read it is not. We need to always remember that in our sinfulness, we might not be quite getting something right, and pretty sure, certain that there's many times we aren't, and that we should be asking questions and looking at the perspectives of others. We need to study the Bible in order to understand who God is and his plan, but we need to be cautious that we don't let Satan twist things such that we read what we want to read and not what is actually there. We should never be fearful of studying the Bible, but always aware of our limitations. We should continually strive to understand things while acknowledging that just because someone has a different perspective or opinion does not make them wrong and us right, or vice versa. There are likely conclusions reached that could be considered more right or more wrong, but the key is to approach these topics with a mind open to other perspectives and God's leading, with the goal not being to show ourselves right and to prove someone else wrong, but to be motivated by using these issues and discussions as opportunities to grow ourselves in our relationship with Christ and with each other, exploring and asking questions, not with the intent of necessarily coming up with the definitive answers that apply to all situations for all time, but creating an understanding that will best position us and the church for going into all the world and making disciples within the culture and the time in which we live. Okay, getting close to being done here. Yeah, I'm getting close. Okay, so as we wrap up, and I'm sure many of you are excited about that, I would like to take a bit of a journey back in time in history. In the early centuries of the church, there was a lot of stuff they were trying to figure out about the nature of Jesus. I mean, these are big things that I feel are part of the essentials of what it is to be a Christian and the beliefs there. What they did in many cases were to develop creeds whose purpose was to help facilitate unity within the church on the essential elements of who God is and his plan. 
They were meant to be easy to remember and easily recited so that all people, including those that couldn't read or didn't have access to the Bible or whatever, would always be reminded of those aspects of Christianity that made it different from everything else, what made it special, both then and now. It is not our views on creation or the flood or the end times or, dare I say, even worship or baptism or communion or church governance or a multitude of other issues that define what it means to be a follower of Christ. While having views and perspectives on these and many other topics are, necessary, are a necessary part of the Christian life um, as we continue to work through our understanding of God and his plans and our discussions of these topics are valuable to help us grow in our own life and in our relationships with those around us. Disagreements on these should not separate or distract us from what truly unites us as the church in our shared walk with Christ and involvement in his plans. Thus, I would like to go back to the creeds to baseline what I believe are the essentials of the Christian belief and life. So, this is from the Nicene Creed. I'm just going to read the whole thing to you. Some of you might be familiar with it. Um, there's also the Apostolic Creed. I chose the Nicene Creed um, in this case. I think this was written, refined, 4th, 5th, 6th century, somewhere around there. I should have really looked that up. But anyways, follow along with me as we close things out this morning. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. And the band was supposed to be up here. <laughs> Are they there? There they come. So, before they come out, I would just like to pray quickly um, as we think about these things. God, I thank you so much for who you are, what you have provided for us. I thank you for your grace, your lovingness, your kindness to us, despite our sinfulness, despite our fallenness. I praise you for the plan that you have in place that has always been in place and that we know will succeed. I praise you for the opportunity that we have in order to serve along with you, to be a tool in your hand and let you lead us and guide us in whatever path you have chosen for us. Thank you, God, for all of that. In your name, amen.